Today's scripture reading is from 1 John 5, verses 13 to 21. Please read with me the verses in bold. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Marissa. Well, good morning. Um, I want to add my greeting to others. My name is Brad, and I'm one of the pastors here at Grace, one of two. You've already met Daniel. And uh, I want to thank you for worshiping with us this morning. Today is the, the last Sunday of August, and it's the, the last Sunday of our summer sermon series in the book of First John. So you just read the last verse of First John. And let me ask you this. You ever know anybody who doesn't say goodbye, right? When they get done talking to you, they just hang up the phone. There's no, like, farewell or anything. After the last thing they want to say, they're just gone, right? It's kind of the way I feel like the end of First John feels. There it is. Little children, keep yourself with idols, from idols. I'm out. He's done. On the face of it, it also doesn't even seem to me to be that connected with the stuff he's been saying. We've been, he's, most of the passage that I'm going to talk about today is about prayer. And then here it is. Keep yourselves from idols. Done. Like he like lost his cell phone coverage or something. <laughs> went away. And I thought briefly this week that maybe that's why there's two other books of John that are little short things. It's like he calls back. He said, wait, I forgot to tell you something. <laughs> there, it's not quite like that. But there's no benediction at the end of 1 John. Uh, most letters in the New Testament have a farewell or a benediction. If you read Jude, he says, now to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. John says, little children, keep yourself from idols. <laughs> so I feel like I had to begin at the end before we, before we tackled uh, the rest of the passage this morning. What does this abrupt finale have to do with the close of John's letter? 
Is it a random extra sentence? Is it an afterthought? Uh, Or a brief but comprehensive final warning from a teacher who's more worried about assuring his disciples uh, that that he's writing a letter to, um, more worried about assuring them in their security and their faith in Christ than he is about having good manners or good letter-writing convention. That's what I've become convinced of. It's actually uh, one brief final statement that he hopes maybe would lead our thoughts back into what he has said and what he has instructed. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Philosopher Frederick Nietzsche said, there are more idols in the world than there are realities. Now, Nietzsche was no friend of Christianity, but his observation is consistent with what the New Testament says about idolatry. Essentially, the New Testament says whenever uh, someone trusts or serves or reveres or follows something or someone other than God, whenever we give ultimate authority in our lives to something that was never meant to sustain that kind of hope or never meant to give us our identity like we want it to, whenever we do that, we're living in a different reality. We're living with a false understanding of the way things are in the world. Uh, we live in a world that was actually created by God and redeemed by the sacrifice of his son. And living consistently with that reality is the opposite of idolatry. As John begins the passage that we read today, this is what he's after. He says in verse 13, I write you these things, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Purpose statement of the letter. I write you so that you may know, have this experience and knowledge that you have eternal life. And I think we often get hung up on that term, eternal. Um, When we hear eternal, I think, I know, I often, uh, when I hear that, I think uh, eternal means go to heaven and live with God forever. And, And I think that, if that's, where we, if that's where we stop our definition of eternal, then we miss some parts of what the Bible is talking about when it says eternal or eternity. Uh, what that definition misses is that eternity is not just uh, the timeline stretching into the future, but in fact, when we say eternal, we're talking about a characteristic of God, that he is eternal, that he existed before and outside of what we understand is to be time. He created this thing that makes your clock run. And so he is eternal. He uh, created time along with everything else. And so when John writes to encourage us and assure his believers that believing in the name of the Son of God is living in a way that is actually deeply consistent with reality, uh, because it is living in a way that is conscientious and aware and pursuing the fact that life and creation as we know it was created by an eternal God. And so he says uh, that we can know this reality uh, because God has pulled back the curtain, as it were, and shown it to us. He has shown us himself by coming in the flesh as Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so 
he wants his readers, uh, he says, I write to let you, I write, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you can be assured that you have eternal life, that you're living a life that is consistent with creation created by an eternal God who loves you and sent his Son for you. John wants his readers to be able to live life knowing that this is true and to live life secure in that truth. And the primary characteristic of the life that he describes between verse 13 and verse 21 in our passage today, uh, a life lived knowing God in Christ, he describes as a life of prayer. Uh, He talks about prayers God hears. He talks about prayers God answers. And he talks about praying with the protection of Jesus. And I'm just going to talk about those three things this morning. Prayers God hears, prayers God answers, and praying with Christ's protection. And we're talking about living, uh, living in a way that's consistent with reality, right? Well, I want to tell you a story about entering a totally different reality than one that I knew that existed until a year ago. Yesterday, I went to one of the biggest rivalries in high school sports in this area. Two, uh, I went to the women's volleyball match between Christian Brothers High School and St. Francis High School. The two big Catholic high schools in Sacramento. And our daughter now goes to Christian Brothers. We've been welcomed into a whole new world. Um, They call this game the the Holy Court game because it's these two schools. And it is mayhem. It was so fun. There was a traffic jam in the parking lot and a packed gym and security guards and a mascot on the other side of the court who I'm pretty sure was a girl dressed up like Francis of Assisi. <laughs> she had a brown robe and a staff, and she was leading the cheers from their cheering section. She had a wig on that had a bald spot <laughs> on the back. And uh, she was dancing to the music. And uh, I didn't go to Catholic school and grew up in this area to know that this, this rivalry existed. Um, So I'm already walking into a different world, and then after the national anthem, before the game starts, um, two uniformed members, one from each team, uh, came to the center court, took microphones, and led this rowdy place in prayer. That was not my experience in high school. Uh, They took turns reading this beautiful prayer in which they prayed that there would be sportsmanship, that there would be good competition, that there would be safety. They prayed for whoever would be the victor of, uh, of the game. Uh, they, prayed, uh, they, they, prayed for, uh, they prayed for their teams, and then at the end of the prayer, they both said this line together, and everyone in the room knew it, and they said it with them. Let us remember that we are in the presence of a holy God. And we were, and we are. And what an amazing moment. Uh, I thought we are in the presence of a holy God. And it's really important that we remember that right now. Because things were about to blow up. (laughs) 
I loved that prayer, and I also felt like the whole experience embodied for me a lot of questions about prayer and how it works and what's happening. Um, is this the kind of prayer that God hears? Verse 14 and 15 say, And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. A few quick observations that might be obvious from the text, maybe not. But first, John says that followers of Jesus can be confident in praying to God. The God, the eternal God of the universe, followers of Jesus are encouraged and welcomed into his presence to pray. God is the recipient of our prayers. The, the passage says that, we, that our prayers are toward him, Right? So contrary to, our, to, the, to what we, we tweet around the world, we don't actually send prayers and thoughts to other people. Christians uh, direct our prayers to the God of all creation on behalf of those for whom we pray. And that's, that's as audacious as it sounds, uh, that every believer is encouraged and welcome to pray to God directly, as a follower of Jesus, we don't, uh, John doesn't tell us that we need a priest, that we need a saint, that we need a swami, that we uh, need any go-between uh, to pray for us. Jesus is our go-between, our mediator. In becoming human and destroying sin, he has broken down every obstacle that separates us from direct communication with God. And the passage says that he invites us to come and that he hears us when we pray. Now, it goes on, it says, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we will have the requests that we asked of him. But wait, I know that half of that gym was praying for Christian brothers to win. <laughs> and we did not. We did not win. Uh, it was a tough day. Christian brothers, did, uh, ladies, did not play up to the way we know that they can play. I think that they were maybe distracted by the dancing Francis on the other side. <laughs> Does that mean God didn't hear our prayer? Let's look at what John says about prayers that God answers. He says, uh, but our confidence, uh, according to John, uh, is not that we'll get whatever we want. Uh, that's not what he is saying. He says, if we ask according to his will, he hears us. According to his will. John isn't suggesting that because we have uh, this confidence in Christ to approach God directly, that that somehow makes God a pushover. Be just because God hears all of our prayers doesn't make him our butler, obliged to give us whatever we ask for, which is helpful philosophically as you think about a gym praying for opposite outcomes, right? The idea, is, the idea is that the more that we get to know God's character and his purposes, uh, and we do that through gathering and worship, and we do that through learning how to pray that's guided by Scripture, we, the more we get to know who God is, the more we uh, will be able to pray for God's will to be done, 
the more we will understand uh, who he is and we can approach God in a way that says, I know the things that I'm praying for are the things that God wants as well. Uh, not just to get whatever we want from him, but to discover his will and his plan for our lives and for the world as we know. To put it another way, uh, implied in the passage is that we can be confident that foolish and sinful prayers will bounce back to us like bad emails. Praying for a better spouse who will understand our desires better, or for the other team's best player to get hurt, or for help getting revenge on someone who hurt you. Uh, these are prayers that I should clearly not expect to be answered the way I want because they're clearly in conflict with the will of God in Scripture. That doesn't mean that God says, these are prayers you can't pray, right? It says we come in confidence uh, because of Christ and that God hears our prayer. God wants to hear the hurt in your heart. He wants to hear the anger. He wants to hear the frustration. He wants to know where you're at. Uh, he wants you to be able to express that. The Psalms are full of real pain and real hurt and real confusion and some real uncomfortable stuff, right? But in the same way as our own disbelief or our own disobedience or our own wrong motives can hinder our prayer life and our prayers, uh, praying to God for help breaking God's own law and dishonoring his name is a prayer that you can expect to be denied. Sometimes, therefore, it's very difficult, right, to discern God's will. And it seems like John is suggesting that it's actually prayer that God designed for us to be part of the vehicle by which, we're in which we are invited to pursue finding out what God's will is. One thing is clear, God wants to know your heart and that there's nothing wrong with telling him what you hope for, uh, how you hope things will turn out, what you want, and he's listening and he hears, even when his plan involves something else. He hears the prayers of his people. We can see this at play in the life of the life and actually the prayers of Jesus Christ. If you read through the Gospel of John, Jesus uh, talks consistently of only, wanting, uh, of only saying and doing what God the Father says and tells him to do. Like, that's what he wants to do. He teaches his disciples to pray. We just prayed it this morning, right? Thy will be done. When they asked him, how should we pray? He said, pray it seeking to find out what God's will is and for it to be done. And uh, he embodies the pursuit of knowing and submitting to God's will even when it's not his own will in his final prayer in the garden of gethsemane right the night before he died he prays in matthew 26 my father if it be possible let this cup pass from me nevertheless not as i will but yours be done god the son praying what he hopes for and yet submitting to what god's plan is John gives a positive and a negative example in our context today of what this might look like in praying in the life of the church. First, verse 16, he says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Uh, John 
uses this word brother, and when he says brother here, he's referring to fellow believers. He's talking about other followers of Jesus sinning. Oh, man. When you hear about sin in the church, or when you hear about people hearing about sin in the church, what's our tendency? To talk. Our tendency is to be judgmental. It's to be holier than thou, to whisper about it to other people. Maybe even our tendency is to despair. Ah, this church too, there's sinners here. But John says that praying for a brother or a sister who loves Jesus but has fallen into sin, praying for them to be restored, praying for God to forgive them, for them to find renewal in life, to return to pursuing and living a life that's uh, consistent with the confession that they've made in, in Christ, uh, he says that that's the kind of prayer that God not only hears, but it's the kind of prayer God wants to answer because it is so uh, consistent with reality and with his will that he has revealed in Scripture. I bet we could each think of somebody, a brother or a sister in Christ, who's stumbling right now, and maybe today is the day to spend some time repenting of what we've thought or said or whispered about them and a little bit more time praying for them and for God's restoration in their life. John gives a negative example as well. He uses this term, sin that leads to death, to define what he's talking about. He says that there is a sin uh, that leads to death, and I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Uh, what is he talking about? Remember, if we remember back through 1 John, uh, we've, we've heard about John uh, addressing false teachers and false prophets who were once part of their community but now have gone out from them, he says, denying that Jesus came in the flesh and teaching other people to do the same. Um, he's making a, I think he's trying to make a differentiation between behave, uh, believers behaving badly, people who love Jesus, who are struggling with old vices, and he, and he knows and we know that those things are disruptive and they're damaging to the church, but these not, are not examples of sin that deny and reject God's forgiveness and his eternal life. Uh, he is talking about denying that Jesus is Savior, um, that's what uh, John's words, a sin that leads to death, probably refer to because he's talking about uh, uh, people who are rejecting forgiveness and denying the truth of the gospel. And so while we're always invited to pray for friends and to pray for family and to pray for our neighbors that do reject Christ and that do deny uh, that God forgives or don't yet know the truth of the gospel, we were always encouraged to pray for them to come to faith. Uh, what Jesus has done on the cross uh, is what we want to be active in their life. Uh, while, we, while we do pray for that, we can't pray for or expect that denying Christ and rejecting God's grace would be overlooked. Try, I'm, let me try to put it another way. Uh, we pray 
that blasphemy and injustice would come to an end in the presence of God. In the presence of Christ. We, we don't pray. Uh, John is uh, letting us know that uh, we don't pray that Christ would allow himself to be blasphemed or ignored or that he would ignore oppression even by someone that we love. Let me try that again. We are being encouraged to pray for people to find Jesus. We are not, uh, we are not being encouraged that uh, people who deny Christ and, and dishonor his name, that that sin would be overlooked. Uh, there's a contradiction. And so John uh, prays uh, for his community and encourages them to pray uh, that discerning God's will in the lives of those false teachers is a difficult task. Uh, that as they pray for their souls, they don't pray for blessing on the work that they're doing in denying Christ. I wish that all the prayers uh, that were prayed before the game yesterday had been answered. Or at least answered the way that I wanted them answered, right? I wish that we had won. We didn't. I wish that there had been no injuries, but there was. I wish that some of the cheers that the student section shouted at each other had been kinder. I wish that life on this side of eternity was free from the battle with sin. I wish that knowing Jesus meant that your family couldn't be destroyed by infidelity or that your body couldn't be uh, ravished by cancer. I wish that knowing and following Jesus meant that you'd never disappoint yourself again by falling into the same old sin. But clearly, uh, based on what John writes to his own church and those listening, and, and based on our own experience, that's not uh, a part of God's eternity that he has seen fit to yet realize. We haven't entered that part of redemption yet. Uh, we're still living in a world that's ravished by sin and in, in relationships and families that are too. And the existence actually of so much sin in brokenness, however, is one of the most powerful validations uh, of the fact that the gospel account is a true account of the reality that we live in. Uh, what we've been reading in 1 John says that we cannot, out, we cannot work our way out of this. We cannot behave our way out of this. That we literally need to be reborn out of the grasp of sin and, uh, and given new life through the death and resurrection power of Jesus. In verse 18, John says, uh, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he, was born of God, he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one doesn't touch him. I think this is the, the hopeful wrinkle here as we think about praying for our own struggle with sin, praying for our own uh, families and our own uh, faith. John is clear that uh, faith in Christ is a life lived knowing 
that while we'll continue to struggle with sin in a world tarnished by sin, we are protected as followers of Jesus from ultimately being destroyed by sin. And so we live and we pray under that protection. He says that he who was born of God protects us. Jesus Christ protects his followers. While Christians will sin, and John tells us to pray for our brothers and sisters who are struggling in that sin, and sin has consequences, um, sin and its consequences do not define followers of Jesus because he defines us. His love and forgiveness defines us. He protects us. He who was born of God protects. Jesus keeps us, those who follow him by faith. And, the, and the, the gospel of John says, no one can snatch us out of his hands. Nothing can snatch us out of his protection. So we live uh, and we pray and we pursue God's will knowing that even in the worst, not even our own mistakes, not anything that happens to us because of other people's sin in the world, not even, as John, 1 John says here, the evil one under whose power the rest of the systems of the world uh, operate, none of those things uh, can ultimately destroy us because of the work that Christ has done. He says, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. John reiterates uh, this claim that believing that Jesus is the son of God, come in the flesh, died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin, resurrected to defeat the power of death, offering that resurrection life to his followers is reality. It is uh, the, the, the best way to understand the world that is created and the, and the world that we have been invited to live in. And so it's no mistake that when we gather uh, each week to proclaim that truth and that reality, that we try to be people of prayer. We try to practice prayer together in which uh, we pray uh, both under the protection of Jesus, we confess with confidence, and, uh, and pray for the world and our brothers and sisters who, who need it. It's also why we come each week and at the end of our service we invite this uh, confession that might just be intellectual or might just be uh, might feel ethereal to become part of our uh, reality and our action by inviting each person to come forward and uh, break bread and drink wine together.